welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Welcome back to Clean Tech Talks. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. This is round two with Andy Tang, Vice President of Energy Storage and Optimization for Vartzilla, a global energy and marine power company that operates in 170 countries worldwide. So I think it's time to step just abstract a little bit because we've got a, a fairly informed audience, but they don't necessarily know why you need storage management software. So maybe abstract up one level and say, here's the reasons you need to manage it in a digital way, in a bit more articulated way. Yeah, no, that's a that, that's a great question. There's actually two broad sets of topics on why you need to manage storage. And one is a safety risk aspect and one is a revenue commercial aspect. Mm-hmm. Both equally important. So first on the on the safety risk aspect, batteries, while while everyone calls a battery a commodity, they are very picky in how they want to live their lives. Mm -hmm. So without getting into too much detail, there are things like state of health, state of charge, resting, you know, where you rest a battery. Do you rest it at 60%, 70% or 40%? What is the ideal operating temperature? Now, people will tell you that, yeah, battery is supposed to be at 25 degrees Celsius plus or minus, you know, three or four degrees, right? Mm -hmm. That's the ideal. But beyond that rough, you know, six or eight uh, Celsius degree range, what's the true range? Do you you actually get a little bit better performance if you lower it a couple of degrees? The answer is yes. Uh, So there's, there's all these types of things. And the warranties are written in such a way that there's a bit of a gotcha on the warranties. So the warranties only are valid if a whole list of conditions are maintained and tracked and that you can prove that they're maintained and tracked. And these types of things have to be measured at a really granular level. So you need an EMS to be able to do that. You also need an EMS to be able to use, you know, you think you've got a battery that's hundred percent full and you think you're, you've got full, line of sight to just discharge it completely, right? But what happens along the way? What happens with heat? What happens with you know, a variety of other factors? So how do you actually discharge that battery optimally? Mm-hmm. And, and again, the reason, why you, and the reason why you do this is one, you want to avoid thermal runaway risks. So there's an absolute safety risk. And two, you want to preserve the life of the asset because the asset is all about cycle life, mm-hmm. okay? And if you can operate it if you can manage the operation of that battery in a slightly different way, but at the same time, the trade-off is you get much more cycle life, then that's a trade-off you'd make every day because that, that generates more, that will over the long haul generate more revenue. Yes. Okay. Now the second reason is, 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 is really a commercial, it ties into the first reason, but there's this commercial aspect too, which is, you know, a battery is a pile of chemicals sitting in a field. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. It's chemistry in the field. It only makes money if those chemicals are at play and electrons are flowing in one direction or the other. And EMS is really about connecting this pile of chemicals, which really has no intrinsic value, and figuring out when, when to flow those electrons 
and connecting that with electricity markets to figure out how you can make money. Yeah, and this varies by jurisdiction and by utility. By jurisdiction, by utility, by ISO, what are the markets? What are the, what are the revenue streams? Mm-hmm. When can you do? When can you do what? Can you do four CP and at the same time do do PJM frequency regulation? How do you stack revenues on top of each other? And mm-hmm. oh, by the way, as you're stacking those revenues, how do you do it so that you don't degre- prematurely degrade the battery or or yep. create an undue fire safety risk? Yeah, when I was speaking to uh, Mariko McDonough Meyer from Convergent. We're talking through the various things. Like one of them, one of the models you've probably seen this is avoid transmission upgrade costs in a remote location. You know that one's just like the wires stretching across are more expensive than putting a battery at the end. Um, another one in Ontario, Ontario because they've got um, far too much uh, inflexible nuclear generation with their nuclear fleet. They actually have built pumped hydro, extended their pumped hydro asset at Niagara Falls, but they also make it very profitable for major industrial consumers to build batteries themselves. And to put, you know, so Shell has got a couple of locations, one in Sarnia, one somewhere else, with a fairly substantial battery because it's worth it for them with the rate relief they get. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is the actually the challenging part, I would say, the commercial part. A, let's tease these apart. You've got LFP assets and you've got lithium ion assets that you manage. And both of those have di- very different chemistries and different processes. So your EMS has to manage both. And even lithium ion varies between manufacturers and OEMs. You know, so you've got those things to take into account. And then you've got on this other side, all these variations by regulatory structure and, and commercial structure that varies, especially in the United States. It's like, it's nutty, the degree of differentiate that it's just tiny it's just a patchwork quilt that's really ugly in the united states it's a a, (laughs) yeah and it's and and i can't even say that it's state by state because it's it's even more nutty than that right you have these regional isos independent system operators and they they have their sets of rules and they have their market services and then you have individual states and they have their you know demand response programs or other things that you can participate in and capacity and 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 whatnot and and so it's this it's this patchwork quilt that you have to kind of sew together Mm -hmm. and and that's the role that an ems can play and if the ems is done well you will be able to to maximize the life of your battery and maximize your revenue or you have to find yeah. that ideal optimization point. So hence the name of our group is energy storage and optimization. But you have mm-hmm. to find that optimization point. You know, one of the things we we are, you know, that I that we're, we're trying to get to is, you know, at some point in time, there's a marginal cost of a cycle. So there's a warranty mm-hmm. and there's a penalty if you violate the warranty. But if you're in Texas, if you're operating a battery storage system in Texas and we're having a nine thousand dollar a megawatt hour hour, mm-hmm. right? So $9 a kilowatt hour for, for, for the listeners here, right? $9, yep. you typically probably pay anywhere from 20 to 50 cents per kilowatt hour. But it, you know, I don't care what that marginal cost of that cycle is. If you're going to get paid $9 for a kilowatt hour, you're going to use it. Yeah. Right. So this concept of, of marginal cost versus marginal revenue, you know, also needs to be brought in. And that's something, you know, we're working uh, we're There's two or three levels to this. I, I, your, your demand management stuff with PG&E would have been very useful for this and other, and other places because you're projecting maximum commercial utility into the future 
And so using that to assist with the battery management life cycle and storage as well. So it's a, a way of thinking about the future that you had already internalized and developed software for. You know, and so if, there's a lot of people who are reactive, but if you can project and then uh, play out various scenarios and find the optimal, commercially optimal through path, that's probably something you're doing with quantum. And so let me talk to you about a, a really cool project that we have because it's, cool. it's relevant to what you have just described. So in the Azores, which is a set of Portuguese islands off coast of Portugal, we have a project on an island called Graciosa. And it is a microgrid. And uh, Graciosa came to us and they, they had deployed a, a, a number of uh, solar and wind assets. They were only able to get to about 17% penetration. They frequently mm -hmm. had to curtail the wind and the solar. And the reason was, was because they were also operating a number of diesel generators on the island. And, and there, were, there are rules around how you optimally operate diesel. And of course, if you violate some of those rules on the diesel, what ends up happening is you, you trip them and you cause an island-wide blackout. Oops. Oops is right. So they came to us and asked us, you know, do you have a, a better solution? W would a battery help here? Yeah, and, and so, I, I just did, by the way, I, I didn't know how far offshore the Azores were, but they're like 1,500 kilometers from Lisbon. So yeah. that's an expensive HVDC underwater cable. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't exist, right? So, so it's an expensive HVDC. It's also very expensive to get heavy fuel oil to the island. Not to mention that heavy fuel oil is probably the, you know, the biggest, you know, is a really bad culprit on the climate. Yep. On emissions. So we put in an energy storage system and, and our GEMS EMS, our, our island grid, island grid solution. Okay. So what this island grid solution does is it creates a, a day ahead dispatch schedule by taking in uh, locally read weather and, and weather estimates from uh, third party services. Mm -hmm. Okay. And using, the, using those uh, weather forecasts for both wind and, and, and solar, we're able to kind of forecast when are the sunny periods going to be, when are the windy periods going to be, okay? Mm -hmm. And then we, we uh, really understand, because of our Vertilla heritage, we really understand how engines operate. And, yep. and even though these engines are not Vertilla, we understand that there is a, uh, you know, there's, a, there's an optimal point to operate the engines. And, mm -hmm. and, and that's where you get maximal fuel efficiency. And then there's something called spinning reserves, which is what happens with, uh, which is how an engine is operated. You need to leave some sort of reserve so that if there's some sort of spike on the island or if one of the engine trips, you can immediately capture that trip. Yep. So we were able to, to look at all of that and, and uh, put in a very small battery, just a one hour battery, right? And in doing so, we've been able to reduce their levelized cost of energy by over 10 cents a kilowatt hour. So the utility, what their cost is to generate electricity by over 10 cents kilowatt hour. And then we were able to increase the renewables penetration to over 60%. Huh, 17% to 60%. Over 60%. Over 60%, very nice. And yeah, the, fuel, so save, much the fuel savings has been massive. Oh yeah, um, the CO two. I'm just trying to find out. I'm kind of like looking on. I hadn't expected to be speaking. I've never thought about the Azores before. Although it sounds like a lovely place to visit. I don't even know how many people live there. You have a sense? Hard to get to. It is pretty it's remote. Hard to, 
1500 kilometers over the Atlantic. There is a direct flight, I'm, I'm told, uh, from uh, Boston because there is a big uh, Portuguese <laughs> community. 240,000 people. So it's a non-trivial island. Is Correct. kind of the point I was trying to make. Correct. Yeah. It has, uh, it has, um, it's a, the size of a reasonable sized city. In terms yeah, of mega, megawatt demand. scale island. Megawatt scale yeah. island. Yeah. This is a, one of those interesting things. We talk about microgrids. I always like to say, how big are we really talking about? Because, you know, the Texas, you know, the Texas Tesla Gigafactory is a microgrid. And now it's actually a utility as well. It's actually mm-hmm. selling storage and electricity to the Texas local grid. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, micro, as I was talking with Bill Nussie, who's a, a guy who's had a, a storied career of setting up companies and selling them successfully. And he's um, started a couple of more companies now. And he does the Freeing Energy podcasts. And you know, we've, I spent a bunch of time talking with him, helped, I kind of gave him a, a bunch of notes on his recent book called Freeing Energy, unsurprisingly. But he's a big local energy guy. But when we talked about local energy, I had to say, what do you mean by local energy? What do you mean by microgrid? The Azores is probably one of the biggest microgrids in the world. 240,000 people is non-trivial. I've got to be isolated. I've got a bigger one that is not a pure microgrid yet, but is a hybrid between an engine and a battery and uh, allowing the utility to integrate much more uh, of of their existing wind. And that's on the island of Bonaire. Bonaire is part of the ABC islands. The A and the and the C are much better known. Aruba, Bonaire, and Curacao. But uh, we deployed a system there a couple of years ago. And likewise, we were able to increase wind penetration from mid-teens to upper 30s, uh, upper 30%. And then we also have a system in Honduras on the island of Roatan. So uh, yeah, there these are like you're right. The, the term microgrid can be very misleading because, you know, some people think of microgrids and, and they're going all the way down to the, you know, tens of kilowatt scale. And but when, when I think of microgrid, you know, I think it has to be in the megawatt scale, like like a real city. And there are a lot of them in the world. I mean, if we you know, one of the things that I um, spend my time looking at occasionally and speak to people about is remote locations, because I live in Canada. We have a lot of remote locations. I mentioned Reykjavik. You know, it's in the, you know, not, sorry, not Reykjavik, Inuvik. Uh, I've, I didn't send people to Iceland. I sent people to northern Canada. Okay. Um, as if you were confused earlier, that explains it. But Inuvik is just a tiny little uh, hamlet on the Arctic Ocean. You know, it's just way up there. And we've got a bunch of those. Um, I assisted in one point in, um, you know, started doing, did some work around the Raglan Mine where there are three uh, substantial size wind turbines offsetting uh, diesel requirements for a massive mine complex in northern Quebec, right? We've got a lot of industrial sites in the middle of nowhere. We've got a lot of resource extraction sites in the middle of nowhere. And so microgrids can be very meaty beasts and can have, to your point, very high CO2e emissions, you know, very high particulate and sulfur emissions. And, and you guys are actually, interesting enough, we can think about this. Let's take the other side of Bartzilla. What's the biggest engine that you guys sell and how many megawatt hours of electric, many megawatts of effective capacity is it? 20 megawatts. Yep. One engine. Ships, 20 ships megawatts. Are, ships are microgrids and some of yep. those things are big, big brutes, especially now because you guys probably have hybrid electric 
uh, engines as well. You've got motors that are electric and you're generating electricity with a generation unit, not directly driving a propeller with torque. Correct. And I got a ton of those. And that's the same thing, right? It's, it's, a, it's a, a microgrid with massive power requirements. Just a really interesting thing. Yeah, it's, I hadn't really thought that, that actually is a really interesting analogy for microgrids that I'd never thought about before. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, you've got these things. You're able to increase the penetration of renewables through intelligent software use and a minimal, minimum of storage. As you said, for the Zores, it was one hour of storage. That's it. A one hour system. Yeah. And that was able to manage the peaks and troughs. Very interesting. So when I was looking well, so so the issue on, on managing the peaks and troughs, this is where intelligent software comes in, and this is where why I talked about the weather forecast. Because really what this is about is understanding at a very granular, you know, five minute, 15 minute level what's going to happen with the wind and therefore how you position the various assets for generation, what's gonna to happen to the wind and the sun, and how you position the various assets such that there might be a time where where the, the wind is blowing. And, and you think you should just put it directly onto the grid, but you also see a scenario where that in that same forecast, you see that the, that the wind is going to stop blowing in, in 30 minutes time. So you're better off putting it into the battery and generating the, uh, you know, the diesel for now, because at a later point in time, you'd rather pull it out of the battery. So it's yeah. really about understanding, and, and we're updating the forecast in real time. So yeah, we are would, updating the forecast in, in real time to figure out how to do that. Yeah, this is one of those things, right? Like 30 years ago, this would have been impossible. 20 years mm -hmm. ago, it would have been really hard. Mm -hmm. Now, there's just all these things that now have come together. Um, you know, I was, I was talking, um, one of my more recent podcast conversations with, with some people from Buzz Solutions, San Diego-based, uh, well, virtually-based California company that does utility transmission and distribution asset assessments using image recognition of drone captured visual images. And so they work with drone operators that inspect transmission lines that cut through rugged stuff. And they've got a, you know, a secure utility grade security online data store the assets can come into. And they yeah. do machine, they do an assessment of the age of the lines, the, they do asset inventory because there's some of these things have got like 40 year old insulators on them. They know, don't know how many they have. And then they can then assist the lines people to actually be out working on the stuff as opposed to looking at pictures in their laptops. But that intersectional intersectionality required UAVs to reach a certain level of maturity, digital cameras to reach a different set of maturity, and machine learning for visual image recognition using ImageNet as a public source, public open source available asset to intersect so you could build a business on top of it. Right. Now, the emergence of very cost-effective lithium-ion batteries and now LFP chemistry batteries, plus the ability to have like really high-powered local processors, plus internet of high-quality prediction of weather, emerging into this single unified thing, very hard to do, even in the 2000s. Yeah, if not so, impossible. Yeah, it's interesting. Did I, no, I'm just thinking... What else didn't really exist? Because Animos was being developed. I, mean, I don't know if you guys pull in Animos data for weather and stuff. It's uh, one of the European ones. But yeah, there's all sorts of public, high-quality public data sets. 
that didn't yeah, exist and the, before. Yeah, and the, the interesting thing about the weather data sets too is, is that there are some that are better than others depending on the region. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So I know that Absolutely. I know that we're we're pulling from several weather data sources for our different projects, because you know there there just are some that are that that do a better job. Uh, and there are places where it's weird too. Like uh, here, we have a problem. We had a problem around the Olympics. We had the Winter Olympics here, mm-hmm. which is when you kind of go west from here, you kind of get to Japan before there's anything there. <laughs> no land between you and Japan, basically, right? There's no, there's no weather satellite, there's no weather monitoring stations figuring out what the weather is that's coming in from the ocean. And so it's problematic to do the weather here. It's easier in other places, right? If you're, you're in the uh, odd downwind on prevailing wind from a place where the, you know, from the prairies, the weather stations upwind of you are going to give you a very accurate understanding mm-hmm. of what your weather is going to be in 15 minutes downwind. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it's... Um, I spent some time dealing with weather issues with IBM. We had a deep blue asset that did that. Yeah. Just fascinating. And, and this is another place where the accuracy of weather forecasts and the accuracy of longer distance weather forecasts has radically improved in the past 15 years because of climate models. We're now actually able to get, you know, six week temperature projections, which are fairly accurate around the jet stream polar vortex transformations. But even now, it's our two-week projections are as accurate as two-day projections used to be. You know, we're actually, people don't believe it because they still get rained on because they forgot to take their umbrella. <laughs> we're still human. But the weather forecasting has massively increased our ability to have a longer range projection. So, and our data sets of weather too. Interesting time. It's, it's once again, it's one of those intersectional things that gems can take advantage of. I, I, I'm... I'm just going to repeat this because I think it's amazing. 17% to over 60% use of renewable, renewably generated electricity for an island with a population of 240,000 people. Massive reduction in fuel costs and fuel expenses. And I think you said 10, per, 10 cents per kilowatt hour average reduction in electricity um, costs. That's correct. Wow. That's USD? Yeah, that was USD. Wow, that's like rates are fluctuating now. So don't hold me yeah. to that now, right? We're, we're, at, so Euro, we're at Euro parity now, almost. Yeah, you guys, um, you, you the, your clients on uh, the Azores must love you guys. Very happy customer. Very happy customer. That's a great yeah. customer success story. We only got about twenty minutes left, and I do want to not transition. But when I was going through the Vartzilla stuff, I noticed also that Vartzilla was projecting the use of e-fuels and hydrogen for energy storage and energy backup. Do you and your business line get into that side of things or how's that working out for you guys? So energy storage is a subset of the energy business. So I report into the president of the energy business and the energy business, we look, we look broadly at future fuels or actually the company overall is what we're looking at future fuels, but also the engine power plant business. So on the, in, on the engine power plant business, you know, we really also believe in the deployment of flexible engines to help us make this transition to 100%. You know, there is a white paper that we have, uh, we have published called uh, Front Loading Net Zero, talking about how we actually get to net zero emissions 
in a in a cost effective way. You know, I think a lot of the uh, critics will basically say that uh, it's too expensive and we, and we can't do this. And, and, you know, maybe they don't quite believe the climate science, but we have done, you know, they're state, stating that we thinkers. have to. Yeah, or they're, or they're in, you know, incented to think otherwise. And so we, we've done the math. And if you take the politics out of it and just look at the math, right, you know, there are ways. And, and of course, it's going to roll out differently in every region because you have, to, you have to see what you're starting with in terms of assets and you have to see what the deployment costs of the different assets are. But we've done math to show that, like, for instance, in California, you can get to a net zero, you can get there even quicker than, than the policymakers right now want to by maybe acknowledging that there is a role, small role, but a role for, um, for natural gas, uh, flex, we, we call them flexible engines, but essentially peakers, to capture that long duration energy storage issue. And, and the path on those would be towards a green fuel. So maybe in the interim, it's not quite as good, but over, over the long term, as you, as you head towards a path towards green fuels, you, uh, you actually get there. It's, a, it's an interesting question because, you know, it, it, the way I project it out, you, know, you guys have, are in the business, especially the GEMS, of maximizing renewables and minimizing fossil fuel use. But as we think through the, you know, uh, one thing I always say about this is that as we do the transition, we front end load with generation and we follow when we build storage capacity and transmission capacity has to come in the middle there somewhere. Those are three things, right? As we go along, we end up with less and less use of our fossil fuel generation assets. You know, I think it was Denmark that when they started out on the deploying the wind energy, they said, we have to manage our coal burning assets in a way that they can, they don't go to business because they can't make a profit. And so they did something, they didn't nationalize it, but they did something equivalent to nationalizing where the coal was a strategic asset that saw diminishing use every year but the owner operator didn't lose money because of that, mm-hmm. right? And so there's multiple ways to skin this cap. One of the ways is just to leave the natural gas combined cycle plants intact and have them fed with natural gas and just have them slowly diminish in terms of capacity factors every year until you know in 2050 or 2060, they're being used for 1% of the year or something like that. And as we build out storage and build out other things. And so there's this alternate scenario where we uh, take clean energy, renewable energy, and we step on it massive times. We make hydrogen with great inefficiency. And then we combine it with, um, well, you guys are doing a methanol engine as one of your flex fuel, fuel things. So in the case of methanol, it's combining it with uh, carbon uh, atoms from CO2. And you step on those, that you gather those those molecules together and you step on them in a well-known process to make methanol. Are you guys involved with the Maersk project around green methanol, by the way? I don't know. Okay. It's not your business line. So yeah, um, um, they, they um, are doing that. I'm looking at that for just finished a report, um, published a report last week on African green hydrogen. And so, uh, Egypt is going down the green methanol, green ammonia route for marine shipping fuels kind of got a couple of projects there but this is an inefficient way to store energy from renewables because you throw away so much as you go through this process mm-hmm. so right and so the question is where is it the gems question writ very large yes for these assets that we have electricity that we generate with renewables is it better to step on them and make green fuels with them 
to use the electricity directly and just use fossil fuels in a diminishing percentage. You know, those are difficult and challenging questions for strategists and policymakers. And so, you know, for you guys, you're saying, well, this is a strategic option. Here's a projection that enables us to have an intelligent conversation about that as one strategic option or uh, as opposed to another one. And it enables you to, and it enables you to sell engines. <laughs> well, we, we do have a big advantage on the engine side versus the, uh, versus the gas turbine. And, and, and the, big, the big advantage is that we have this, you know, we can start, stop an engine hundreds of times a year with, with no impact on serviceability of the engine, with no maintenance impact maintenance cost. And the thing, the thing I like to compare this to is if you have bought a car in the, in the last uh, three or four years, if you bought a new car in the last three or four years, almost all cars now come with the, uh, with the stoplight engine off, right? When you, when you started, when you stand at a stoplight, the engine turns off, right? Yep. And the minute, the minute the light turns green and you take your foot off the brake, the engine turns on again, right? And so I, I will say the following though, which is that Mercedes, as far as I can tell, is the only one who makes it the default operational mode. Because in most cars, they have to actually choose that eco mode or something. Because most of the times when I walk all around all the time, it's only Mercedes that consistently do that. I have two German cars that are not Mercedes, and they both do that. Ah, maybe it's all German cars. I I haven't noticed it from BMWs, and I would have noticed it from BMWs. But, hmm, interesting. That's the default question mark. Because, once again... It, unless we make it the default, people won't do it. It's opt-in versus opt-out. Yep. Basically, it's the argument about opt-in versus opt-out. But the, my point on that is, is that it works. Yep. It saves fuel, and it's a minor nuisance, and and it doesn't increase O and M O and M costs. Whereas yep. if if you start to do that to gas turbines, your O and M costs will go through the roof. Interesting. Why is that? They're not, they're not meant to be turned on and off rapidly and multiple times in a day. They can be increased in, in output and decreased in output, but the actual on-off is not, is not, is not the ideal state for a, for a gas turbine. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm thinking about it from my aviation engines perspective, because um, you know, most turboprops are gas turbines you know, these mm-hmm. days, right? It's very few actual you know, non-turbine things, although they're being replaced with batteries and motors, of course. Huh. Yeah, I guess part of it is part of it is possible the operational side, but small boat engines get turned on and off all the time. So maybe that's the emergence of the technological infrastructure because everything comes from somewhere. There's yeah, a reason exactly. for everything. I just don't know what exactly. it is. It is interesting because you've got the, the motors, you've got the engines, and you've got a significant advantage there. You've got obviously you've got flex fuel requirements from your marine division regardless. You know, the, you know uh, ammonia as one example. I don't know if you have an ammonia engine one, or I don't expect you to know that. We actually are developing an ammonia engine because the marine sector, as you as you noted, the marine sector hasn't made their final pronouncements or decisions yet. Yeah. But but certainly ammonia and methanol are our lead candidates. Yeah, I, I I I'll get to end of job on that this year sometime, but I haven't worked through it sufficiently to know the the variation. I just do. I know that we're going to stop wasting biofuels in stupid places, and so they become strategic options. You know, I've done the math for all, all of aviation through twenty one hundred, and I project that you know I've got a projection there, and, and now I see the scale of the marine shipping requirement. 
know, and so I kind of like look at these things and I say, here's the cost of synthetic fuels, and it's not going to be substantially going down. Biofuels, we get nature to do most of the heavy lifting, the stock cellulosis stuff, and fermentation, we get a whole bunch of the effort for relatively free. You know, there's just different economics that lead to spaces. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see what actually occurs, but I, I'm going to actually come up with an opinion this year. <laughs> it won't be right, but it'll be at least an interesting thing to discuss. Absolutely. Thought-provoking. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, the um, but you do have hydrogen in the mix as well. I saw some pure hydrogen storage statements. We so uh, I'm, I'm on record as saying that's dumb as a box of hammers, but uh, you know, I could be wrong. Depends where you live. So tell us about hydrogen. So, so if you look at this from a European perspective, where you will have full government support for the generation of hydrogen generation uh, and, and, and transportation and storage of hydrogen, where you have smaller uh, or more, uh, more dense population centers and the ability to get the hydrogen around, you know, I think, I don't think that that is, uh, I, I think a lot of policy can, can create a lot of, a lot of good. And, I, and, I and, I, and, I and I'll remind you I, that Ger- Germany was the first to put in massive solar tariffs in a country where the, where the solar penetration rate is, you know, not, it's not Spain over there. Let me tell you that. Yeah, no, I've, I've looked at this, this stuff. The, the, the interesting question there, um, because it's, it's physics and chemistry, where we really run up against hard limits for hydrogen, you know, and I've spent a lot of time looking at the, the chemistry on this. I'm, I'm really nerdy about some things, really nerdy about a lot of things, most people would say. And, and so, yeah, it's, I, I'm looking at myself and others, uh, like the uh, Hydrogen Science Coalition that's just been founded, mostly based in Europe, are looking at the EU's hydrogen stuff and saying, they're going down a bad path because they're going to run run up against those hard limits. I agree, it's quite possible for governments to put a massive thumb on the scale and to create economic opportunities and to create markets where they don't make sense. Mm-hmm. But it'll be interesting to see, uh, my projection is that hydrogen for energy as a pure molecule probably has a five-year existing run rate before bean counters and the spreadsheet people really understand what the actual costs are and that they're not going to go down nearly as much as some people are projecting. So it'll be interesting, but it's an, it's a, we're going through a massive experiment. So we're, we've got only a few minutes left. We've had this great wide-ranging conversation. I never expected to talk about the Azores. <laughs> but I, I think we've come to the, probably the natural end of the conversation, unless there's something about your business we haven't talked about you want to spend a couple of minutes on. No, I mean, we have, we, you know, like the industry, we have grown pretty dramatically. I guess maybe uh, one comment is we have seen some pretty wild dislocation in pricing, mm-hmm. primarily due to the price of uh, lithium carbonate, which is one of the key ingredients that is involved in both, both LFP and NMC. So all lithium ion batteries, you know, require lithium. Yep. Um, and, and, and so the prices have gone up. I mean, system level pricing, IHS market, uh, one of the better um, analysts that tracks these things in, in the industry, they've, they, they've seen system level pricing going up 21% this year mm-hmm. and, and, and 31% next year, which is the first time ever that system pricing has increased. But what encourages me about this is that the market is digesting it. 
And there are certainly some projects that are no longer viable. And, 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 and so negotiate very difficult negotiations are happening right now. But the overall levels we are at where, where you're able to provide solar plus storage or, or, or st- uh, storage services and actually make money still exists. You know, we're, yep. we're still at that price level. And so I think we'll look back on this in 2024, 2025 as a blip in the road, but, but and, and a painful blip, but, but, but still a blip and, and, and come out of it on the other end. Well, you've, you've read my, you know, projection of grid storage and, you know, you know, we've talked briefly about pumped storage hydro. You know, I, I, I personally know that there's a bunch of pumped hydro stuff in development, which is going to see the light of day and, and get shovel ready. There'll be a bunch of announcements this year. So there's a lot of room for strategic growth of those things, but it's not fast to market, right? And so that's thing one. Thing two, as you know, I'm, I'm bullish on Redox Flow te- uh, Technologies. I think that they have a significant part to play as they mature. They're behind lithium ion in terms of maturity as a battery technology, but new chemistries are emerging that have different constraints. I so hope so. I hope so on the redox flow, because yeah. I think I think the challenge we have, and and I, I've I've heard on your, you were on a podcast recently and talked about uh, someone had mentioned that, you know, they thought lithium ion uh, could work for up to eight hour storage systems, and I I, I tend to agree with that that the six to eight hour is probably the limit. The problem is, is that lithium ion doesn't scale in terms of hours very well, no. right? Because you actually have to have more of the lithium ion. You have to have more cells to, to do the hours. So I'm, I'm hopeful that things like redox flow, that we finally get there because you know the size of the tanks can easily be expanded. So therefore the duration of the storage can easily be expanded. And we're, we're gonna need some combination. You know, I, yeah. I, I think it's an all of the above equation here that we're, we're looking at going into the future. Absolutely. Uh, if, uh, you know, my projection through 2060 has, you know, pumped hydro is the biggest, then redox flow, and then lithium ion and other similar chemistries, and then some also rands, but my also rands are 100 gigawatts of power. You know, it's a non, it's, it's still it's a big a number. It's a non-trivial number. Yeah. yeah. So last few minutes, this is the open-ended time. You had this fascinating career where you've gone from a money guy, an M&A guy, you know, kind of soulless you know, a guy in California. And as you said, you know, your love of the mountains inspired you to want to be in a place where you're delivering climate value. So you've got a big audience here. You've got like 50%, you know, the United States and 50% the rest of the world, you know, thousands of people are going to hear this. What message would you say? What thing would you like to share with them as your last closing thoughts? I came to this passion because I, I, I am an avid skier. And what I've seen over the last 30 years, where you see the, you know, where you see the, uh, the snow line gradually move higher and higher and higher up the mountain. So, you know, I, I can personally point to uh, my home mountain is the Sierras. And I can personally point to the fact that the snow level on average has probably moved up a thousand feet. The, you know, whereas when I started skiing with, with uh, at resorts with the base elevation of 6,000, every storm came in as snow. Now, you know, 50% of the storms are coming in as rain. We, we have a chance to get ahead of this. We have a chance to fix this. You know, I think going renewables for me is, is really, really personally important. I'd like to be a steward for future generations of skiers, actually, quite, quite frankly. 
And I think we have the tools. We just have to have, we, we just be able to have to get the policy wrapped around behind this and really make this happen. Excellent. This has been Clean Tech Talks with Andy Tang, Vice President of Energy Storage and Optimization for Vartzilla, a global firm that operates in 170 countries globally. And he's got the global storage and optimization business. Got a storage need? Obviously, someone to talk to. Andy, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Michael. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Walk, 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 walk,